Glad to see everyone this morning. Happy Sunday. Hope everyone had a, a really good 4th of July and you were able to enjoy that with your family and friends maybe. Maybe even without all of these uh, public firework displays, maybe you even got your kids to bed on time. Maybe the fireworks just kept them up all night even later than you would have originally done that. Um, my name is Josh and I'm going to be preaching this morning. I never do this, so uh, I might never see me again, but I'm thankful that you're here. Um, this morning we're going to talk about what is your best 4th of July memory, right? Was it maybe the biggest, most awesome fireworks display that you've ever seen? Was it the most delicious watermelon or the best homemade ice cream? Or, you know, if you're like me, you really like barbecue, and uh, sometimes that makes the 4th of July even better. But for me, it was actually when I was a kid in our small town where I grew up, had a, a little 4th of July rubber ducky race down the creek in our town, and you pick your number on the rubber ducky, and you know, that day mine actually made it down the creek first. It's pretty, pretty exciting. Um, but whatever that memory was for you, it, it probably wasn't too hard to remember that, right? We're pretty good at recalling our favorite memories. Um, good memories are, by definition, they're good, right? And so they can be helpful um, to remind us of God's thankfulness. At the same time, though, these good memories, they can cast a pretty big shadow on our current situation. I mean, it's not easy to top the very best 4th of July you've ever had. It's just not an easy thing to do. But there are actually many bigger shadows in each of our lives that are caused by these good memories. Most of the time, we, we don't even realize that we're kind of just going through life, looking in the rearview mirror, and always comparing things to the past, constantly thinking about the way things used to be. When we live that way, what we'll see this morning is that we can easily get bogged down, we can get discouraged, and it can be difficult to follow God. And so when we are stuck in the shadows of the past, our hearts get weak um, because they just get shackled to these convenient earthly comparisons. Now these are internal comparisons, like how physically fit did you used to be? Right? What did our walk with God used to look like? What did our church used to look like? What did our society used to look like before all of the things that we currently have today? When we are held captive by these comparisons to the past, um, we can become self-centered, we can become fearful, and we can easily lose our way. We become blind to God's glory and God's faithfulness. And so our text this morning is gonna come from Haggai chapter two. And this is the same position that we're gonna see the Israelites in this morning. Just one month into the rebuild of the temple there, they can only see the shadow of Solomon's temple from the past. And so often we too are shackled to the past, shackled to these comparisons, and unable to get away from them. And so this morning in verses one through nine, we're gonna find some good news for us and for the Israelites in Haggai's message which reads more like a pep talk in my opinion, but what we're gonna see this morning is that our faithful God makes his people strong. Again, that's our faithful God makes his people strong. So let us pray and prepare our, our hearts to read God's word. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you and we thank you for your word. Father, each of us um, are weak, we're feeble, 
we can easily be tossed to and fro by our own mind, our own circumstances, by our own past. But Father, your word is true. Your word endures forever, and uh, we need it this morning. So help us to see your word. Help it to speak to the depths of our soul. This is what we ask, and this is what we trust that your word will accomplish this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So as we enter Haggai's world, it's positioned right after the exile, and Haggai arrives on the scene as Israel is rebuilding their temple. And so in chapter one of Haggai, God addresses Israel's procrastination. He told them to rebuild the temple, and 15 years later, they hadn't really made any progress. So that was kind of a problem for God. At the same time, though, everyone had found time to work on their own houses and take care of what they needed to do. And so, as is the case normally, what we spend with our time is an accurate reflection of our heart. And so with this God's correction, the rebuild commences, and the moral of the story from chapter one is, is don't procrastinate here. And so now let's read chapter two, verses one through nine. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, to begin with, we're just gonna focus on verses one through three. And here, what we're going to see is we're going to see Israel's shadow of the past. As I mentioned, chapter two happens just after the conclusion um, of chapter one, of course, and the Jews here were convicted of their reluctance in rebuilding the temple. As they returned from exile, they let all kinds of distractions get in their way, um, and it took a drought to get their attention. So that's what God used to get their attention, it was a drought, and this is not the kind of drought that makes it so you don't have to mow your yard for the month. This is the kind of drought where you actually get hungry because you don't have enough food. I don't know about you, but hunger is a pretty good motivator and it really gets my attention and it worked here for Israel as well. And so Haggai was sent to explain the what and the why of everything that was happening at this moment. And so at the conclusion of chapter one, they had just come into the fear of the Lord and started to rebuild the temple. Now in chapter two, just one month, 30 days later, we see the shadow from their past coming into play. We can sense their discouragement and this initial surge of energy that was there as they started the rebuild had already began to wane. 
In verse 3, the people who were old enough to see Solomon's original temple in all of its glory and all of its splendor, they were discouraged. They could remember what Solomon's temple used to look like. And what they were working on right now did not hold a candle to what used to be. In Ezra 3, it actually references this and says, these people were actually weeping loudly. Um, And so just imagine tearing apart the Mona Lisa into like a thousand pieces and trying to put it back together with Elmer's glue, right? Or having Michelangelo just redo the Sistine Chapel, but this time you just get four different colors of sidewalk chalk. I mean, do you think he's really gonna be all excited about that, right? I mean, that's just kind of depressing. You, you know it's just not going to be the same. And so the glory of Solomon's temple wasn't just beautiful, right? It was also a place of pride for Israel. As they tried to put the pieces back together, it was clear that this glorious temple and its majesty had faded. And in light of their recent exile, the sense of the national pride of Israel also had faded as well. And so even though the majority of people hadn't actually seen Solomon's temple, they knew about it. They knew about its grandeur, its ornateness. They knew about the gold overlay, the precious stone, the big pillars. I mean, it was legendary. But before, they had needed this amazing place of worship to actually dwell with God. And it also reflected his glory. And now this rebuilt temple just kind of seems like a sham, right? It, it didn't seem adequate for the God who was the same, and they feared that God actually would not be with them in this place that they are rebuilding. And so now we've kind of gotten into the mind of the Israelites in this time. We can see these emotions are really all tied to their perspective, right? They're tied to the comparison of the old temple and the new temple. But comparisons are really just a part of life. You can't get away from them, right? We see everything um, in comparison to one another. We, it's very difficult to see something in isolation. God knows their heart in this moment. He knows that this comparison is the root of their struggle and their emotion. In fact, God actually affirms that this comparison, he knows they are not going to be the same. And the Israelites are correct. The rebuild temple is not the same. And comparisons truly aren't bad in and of themselves. They are true, but it's what comes as a result of these comparisons that is the problem. It's clear that the hope, they were putting their hope in the former glory of this temple. And that's the key. And that's what's being revealed in this little window to their heart. And so that's what's causing this emotional distress. And that's what's causing them to pause and struggle with this rebuild. Now I can see it now. In the future, I can see a cake. And inevitably, both of my boys will get a piece of this cake. They will look at one another's piece of cake and they will determine that they are not exactly the same size. Um, How will they respond to this comparison? I think it's not very difficult to imagine to, to foresee some grumbling, some complaining, And under the right circumstances, it could quickly escalate from there without a doubt, Um, especially at their current ages, right, Um, of being three and and about six months. Um, But by the grace of God, there could be a different outcome. They could display a heart of thankfulness 
and contentment for just having a single piece of cake, no matter what the size would be. I would pray that this would be the case, right? But again, the comparison is not really the problem here. It's what results, it's the resulting action of this comparison and what it will produce. This is the reflection of the heart. And for the Israelites, their perspective is just revolving around this partially rebuilt temple. And it's just being completely overshadowed by the glory of what once was. All the Israelites are able to see is exactly what is in front of them. That's where their focus is. Does this sound familiar? I know that our thoughts are also centered on what's in front of us, whether that's our cell phones full of social media or now our cell phones full of social media and COVID news, right? I mean, we are kind of constantly just focused on what is right in front of us. And so when we are looking at down and what's right in front of us, it's easy to miss the point. As they dwell on their earthly comparisons, they allow these comparisons, which although they are true, they allow this to shape their emotions on their total outlook on life. They're forgetting the big picture. They lose perspective in this moment, just like we do, right? With our to-do list, with our phones, with our desire for creature comforts like rest, entertainment, no face mask, and the perfect weather, right? Whatever you might define as your perfect weather. Regardless, it's easy to dwell on the earthly. I think we can all agree on that. And so when we put our hope in these comparisons and we define our expectations based on our past achievements, we know where this can lead. It'll put us in the same place as the Israelites are. We'll be disappointed, we'll be self-serving, and we'll, be, um, we'll bring about our own destruction. On the other hand, the past can give us some perspective. It can serve as a reminder of why the temple looks different at this moment than it did before, which is the rebellious and disobedient nature of Israel. As a nation, they could see their prior sin and its ramifications. There's no way around it. Sin has consequences. It does for us, it did for them as well. And this is an important first step. But we can't stop here. It's tempting to wallow and dwell on the comparison, but there's really no hope in this. And that's why this is only the beginning of this message from Haggai. We can't be controlled by comparisons, allowing them uh, to rule our hearts and minds and actions. When we put our hope and, and our worth in these comparisons, it only gives us two options. Option A, it can just puff us up in pride. Option two, it can just cripple us in shame and discontentment. The Israelites are certainly in option B here, but they are not alone. We can easily be right there with them. Do you feel burdened by your past, like you can't escape it? Maybe it's a significant sin, someone you've lost, something you used to be able to do that you no longer can. It's easy to get wrapped up in the past and to tie our hopes into what once was, and we forget what is happening now, and we forget what is going to happen in the future. And so the best is yet to come for the Israelites and their temple. Now we know that the perspective of the Jews here and how it was wrapped up in the shadow of their past. And we also know where we tend to find a similar stumbling blocks in our own life. 
And so what we'll see next is we'll see God counter this attitude with a directive that Haggai is going to give them in verses four and five, which is pretty much just to get it in gear. And that's what we'll see here. So I'm going to read verses four and five again. You can follow along. It says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's pretty straight talk from God. The directive here is, is obvious, right? Let's get to work. Be strong. He says that three times. He makes sure everyone gets included. The cure for what ails the Israelites is some straightforward encouragement and direction. God knew that they were kind of down and out, that they were wondering if they should even continue and having a difficult time. And so here God is encouraging everyone, the leaders and all of the people of the land. I mean, after all, the temple is for the entire nation of Israel. And so as he encourages them to be strong, God knows that this rebuild isn't going to be easy and that some serious strength is going to be required for this task. He knows that it's not going to come close to the original, but no longer should the temple be a source of aesthetic pride for Israel. Now, we too are often motivated by pride, and when we take pride out of the equation, oftentimes we too will fail to make any progress. Now, anyone can encourage someone else, but does that encouragement produce the same kind of results? Absolutely not, right? I mean, it depends on what kind of person is giving you that encouragement. What kind of credibility with you do they have? And the why and the what are they encouraging you towards? These things make a big difference. We've all gotten some shallow encouragement that elicited nothing more than a shoulder, shoulder shrug, an eye roll, or, or really even no response. It had zero effect on you. Um, this is not the case with what we see here. This is exactly the opposite. God's encouragement to them is grounded in three things. His presence, his promises, and his faithfulness. And that's really key to see. First, he says, work for I am with you. If you're anything like me, you might enjoy helping others more than doing your own work. I've always think it's empowering to work with other people, maybe your friends, and there's, there's just this innate understanding that you can accomplish more when you're working with someone else. And if two people are working on the job, it, it feels way more important than if you're just the only one doing something. I mean, I can't help but think about the time I helped Jeff Mosier redo the hardwood floors in their current house, right? I was a little bit younger then, it's been a while, but it was, I can recall, it was pretty tough work. We ripped up all the original hardwood floor, board by board, and put them all back, board by board. Um, and there's no, um, there's no doubt that it was really important work and their growing family needed the space, right? There's a lot of Mosiers. But, you know, the important thing is it was completely different than just doing it by yourself. And so if we change the equation a little bit and we think about what would it mean if God was working with you? That's, that should be totally different. 
That should be a really big deal. That should completely change the equation. And so why were they called to work and to be strong? Because God was with them. God sent his prophet Haggai to them to deliver this exact message, and it was really important. Now, the encouragement doesn't stop there, though. God reminds them of the covenant he made with them at the Exodus out of Egypt. He said in Exodus 29, 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. This is clearly a reminder of God's faithfulness. In Haggai, at the end of verse five, it says, his spirit is in their midst. It's the same spirit that parted the Red Sea so they could escape the Egyptian rule. And God promises to use his spirit to strengthen them so they would be able to rebuild the temple and complete this task. So this is also the same Holy Spirit that if it has changed your heart and brought you into relationship with Jesus Christ, it's the same spirit that you will see with you when you're fighting sin in your life. The spirit is one and the same. And so we are clearly able to see God's encouragement to get it in gear and how this is rooted in faithfulness to his covenant. God reminded them of his presence in chapter one, but he needed to do it again here just to keep things going. We don't have to fear. Right? God is with us. And a similar message is given, us, is given numerous times in the Old Testament, to be strong and courageous. In Joshua 1, this is the command followed by the reminder that the Lord will be with him wherever he goes. When a dying David gives some of his final instructions to Solomon, as he's about to plan for the temple, he not only said to be strong and courageous, but he reminded him that God is with him and he will not forsake him. God does not encourage the Israelites to just be blindly strong and courageous, he-man temple builders to just get it done. No, he encourages them to be humble, to be God-fearing builders that rely on the strength and the presence of God to continue their work in the present. It's a big difference there. Now this exhortation that Haggai is delivering was meant to address the people's fears. They were afraid, they feared that this rebuild was really not even worth it, that it was just a waste of time. That's why they were dragging their feet for so long to begin with. And if we can't make it better than before, what's, what's really the point? Maybe God wouldn't even dwell with us. Doesn't seem fit for him, maybe at least from the outside appearance of this temple that they are rebuilding. But the Israelites were focused on the superficial, the physical, and that made it really easy for them to miss the spiritual and eternal significance of what they were doing. Now we get discouraged just like the Israelites because what we are doing can oftentimes seem so small and worthless as well. But we too miss the point, right? We miss that the significance of what we do is based on the heart in which we do it with and the faithfulness to the one that we serve. And so this quality of the rebuild is not what it's all about from an appearance standpoint. It's about the heart of the Israelites, remembering the faithfulness of God and that they would give their priorities to God in what he has called them to do. That they would not fear the small and superficial significance of their actions, but rather that they would see um, 
that their efforts would allow the Lord of hosts, the supreme creator of all, to dwell with them, which is what he has said that he would like to do, what he wants to do. And so when our hearts are not aligned with God's because we have forgotten what God has said, what he has promised, what he has shown us in his faithfulness, it's easy to get stuck in the perspective that just revolves around the past. And it becomes hard to work in the present for his glory. And so when our hearts and our minds are rooted in the promises of God and his faithfulness, we can actually get it in gear with strength and courage because God is with us. And so we may, all, we may do all to the glory of God. Now what has God called you to do as a Christian? As an employee, as a friend, as a parent, a spouse? Don't let your past performance in any of these roles dictate how you live today. It's time that we step out of that shadow. God commands for us, they haven't changed at all. They remain the same. The one another's that have been preached about for the last two months, they're the same as well. They still apply to all of us. Live in harmony with one another, be hospitable, rejoice. The list goes on and on. Today, God is not asking you to rebuild the temple. Today, he's asking you to follow him with your whole heart. He's asking you to love your neighbor. He's asking you to share this life-changing gospel with those people around you in your life. That's what he's asking you to do. And so now it's time to, to get it in gear because our faithful God, he is with us. And so as we see and we hear God's encouragement and, and his rather blunt direction that he gives in verses six through nine, Next, we're gonna move forward and see how to hope in the future. And so that's, like I said, verses six through nine. I'm gonna read those again. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, as our pep talk here from Haggai kind of comes to a close, he's beginning to paint a brilliant picture of what is coming for the Israelites. Right at the tail of this encouragement, in the present to work hard and to be strong because God is with this. God is wrapping this up with the great hope that we have in the future. In just those four verses, we read the Lord of hosts five times. In fact, this phrase is used all over Haggai and it's there to remind us that God is sovereign and that that's really important, right? Oftentimes, repetition is kind of the key to figuring out the main idea here and so, God is overall, he knows all, and his rule extends to over all things. And so in the context, if we think back about verses four and five, it's encouraging to know that the same God who promises to be with you is the same God that is supremely sovereign over all things. And so as we continue reading there, we are encouraged by what he will do in the future, and all of that is made possible because of his sovereignty. 
He is describing the glory of the temple in the future. The shaking of the lands and all nations will release the treasures of the nations to fill God's house in his glory. We know that the nations have always been a part of God's redemptive plan. It's easy to see that throughout the Old Testament, right? From telling Abraham that he will make him a great nation through which all families will be blessed in Genesis 12, to Psalm 96, that's filled with encouragement to declare the glory of God among all nations, to Zechariah 2, where he says, many nations will be made to join themselves to the Lord. It's a pretty consistent theme. And so in this snapshot, though, we begin to see some new parts of the temple worked out. Not only will it have all the nations, as it says, in verse eight, we read a subtle comparison to Solomon's temple. His temple had no shortage of silver and gold, but here, God is reminding us that it was really all of God's anyway, right? And it indicates there in verse nine that the glory of the temple will become much greater in the future. And finally, when this temple is established, there will be peace. After many years in exile, you have to think this idea of peace had to sound pretty encouraging. Now, they might not have loved all the talk about all the nations, and you have, to rem- you have to remember, right, Israel had been conquered and enslaved multiple times, so that might not have really been the best news, but it's difficult to comprehend how the glory would surpass the earlier temple in their mind. Despite the fact that it might be challenging to understand for them completely, it had to sound good and encouraging, and to know that God is the one who keeps his promises. So it was no mystery, they'd seen God fulfill his promises time and time again. He would not abandon them, and nor would he abandon his promises to them. Now, as we read Haggai chapter two today, some of these promises, though, they can actually ring a little bit truer for us. While the original and the rebuilt temple were for the Jews, the future temple that Haggai is describing here will not have the physical walls of protection, nor need them. The temple won't be built for Israel alone, and people will come with the establishment of this temple. The temple will allow for God to be with his people. And so the latter glory of this temple that Haggai is referring to is Jesus. Jesus will become the temple whose glory is unsurpassed. He will bring peace. He will let all of the nations in. And this is established in the new covenant of Christ. Early in the ministry, we see Jesus refer to himself as the temple. In in John chapter 2, 19, the temple said, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The temple was personified in Jesus with the three days pointing to his death and resurrection. So Jesus has established the peace between God and his people. Praise the Lord. And he did this by taking on God's wrath and judgment on the cross by bearing the pain of all man's sin so that we can dwell in God's peace eternally. And so in Paul's letter, this is really stated beautifully there in Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 and 18, it says of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now for the Israelites, it was about trusting in God's faithfulness, that he would keep his promises, that he would be with them and that they did not have to be afraid. And for us, it's about the exact same thing. We need to see God's ultimate faithfulness displayed in this new covenant that was established with Jesus Christ. We should put our trust in the new temple with its unsurpassed glory, the temple that has brought us peace as well. And we should put our trust and hope in Christ Jesus. For if we repent of our sins and we put our faith in the redeeming work of Christ, then we all shall enjoy dwelling with God in peace for eternity. And so if you're feeling weak or afraid or unsure how to escape from the shadows of your past and, and living with that mindset, I pray that you will look to Christ this morning, to his death, to his resurrection for freedom, for new life, and for strength from the one who is above the Lord of hosts. For those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ but fall all too often into these same traps as I do, I encourage you to step out of the shadows of the past and repent for the hope that we have misplaced in these earthly and internal comparisons. But don't stop there, right? God's commitment to us goes far beyond the appearance of this temple. He has not abandoned us Rather, he has sent us Jesus. So let your hearts be rooted in God's faithfulness and presence. Don't look to the earthly for hope. Rather, look to God's promises to see the blessings that are to come. Now, continue to work for God in the present as he has called us all. And continue to hope in the future, all knowing that our faithful God will make his people strong. If you'd bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you for this message from Haggai. We thank you that it still speaks to us this morning. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts to help us respond to your calling, that you would free us from the sin from the shackles of our past, good or bad, Father, that you would help us move forward with what you have called us as Christians, that you would help us move forward, that we would find our hope in you, and we would find our hope ultimately in what you are doing. And so we thank you for Jesus, for what he has done. We pray that he would continue to just change our hearts, change our minds. And, um, and make us who you have called us to be, a reflection of you and your glory. It's your name we pray, amen.